Hello, hello, hello. It is Friday, February 9th, and it is a huge day for two reasons. Firstly, as we talked about yesterday, well, overnight, the US Supreme Court has begun hearing arguments about why, or perhaps why not, Trump should be allowed to be in the running to be the next president of the United States. And also, it's uh, World Pizza Day, so that makes the decision about what to have for dinner tonight very easy indeed. Kelda, this is Newsable. I'm Jess, and this is What's Worth Talking About. 2024 is the year of the election, with more than 50 taking place worldwide. So which ones should we be watching? Why throwing paint at famous works of art may be hindering rather than helping the climate change movement. And is there a secret to booking an empty plane? We're finding out plus. The music producer with a billion streams that you probably don't know, but your dog might. All that coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support. Did you know there are at least 64 countries getting to the polls this year, which represents a combined 49% of the world's population, hopefully getting the chance to use their voice and their vote in their nation's elections. It's the largest number to take place in a single year in history. And the results of these elections will have lasting impacts around the globe too. So what do we need to know and what do we need to keep an eye out for? Here to answer those questions is Charles Miller, a political scientist from the Australian National University based in Cambridge. Charles, hello. Good morning. Firstly, of the 64 and other than the US, what elections are going to be the biggest? I would say, I mean, the one that I'm most interested in myself, as you can probably tell given my accent, is the British election. So the election in the UK should be coming up this year. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has indicated that he will be going to the polls. And it looks like we're going to see the end of what will now be 14 years of Conservative government, which is one of the longest spells of Tory rule in British history, I think. Of course, just because some countries are having elections doesn't mean that they will necessarily be, be free, fair and democratic. Are there places where there are you know, guaranteed outcomes for maybe not so good reasons? <laughs> well, yes. I mean, I, I'm not sure if the bookies are taking any bets on the outcome of the Russian election, but I would be mm. rather surprised because <laughs> they wouldn't really fancy anybody who's standing against Vladimir Putin. There was one individual who seemed to be standing on an anti-war platform who's now been ruled out. Russia is one of these countries which is known as an electoral autocracy. So that is that there is an election, but it is not genuine. It is not competitive. There is no real chance that the incumbent is not going to win. And in terms of outcomes for years to come from this, or repercussions for years to come from the elections this year, what are what are some of the you have your eye on, you know, for the 50% of us that aren't actually going to the polls this year? <laughs> well, I mean, obviously the most important election that's coming up is the election in the United States, and I think that that could have very, very profound outcomes. So, if Donald Trump is re-elected as President of the United States, I think... Personally, I think this is a very dangerous outcome for American democracy because, as we saw on January 6, 2021, he tried to overthrow American democracy. In previous years, decades before that, I would have thought that regardless of your sort of partisanship in this in this case, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, that would pretty much put him beyond the pale as a future presidential candidate. Um, but that didn't happen with Trump. So very quickly, Trump's popularity recovered. And if he wins, um, well, I mean, he has said that um, he would prefer an authoritarian system. He has made moves towards 
an authoritarian system when he was um, president. And so it would not be at all surprising if that's what he actually did when he became president. Um, and that's a big, big deal. So regardless, really, of where you stand in terms of um, policy, regardless of what you think of Biden, the fact is that a victory for Donald Trump is something which could very well signal the death knell for American democracy. Charles Miller, political scientist from the Australian National University. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you very much for your time as well. Thank you. Okay, be honest. Does a year full of elections fill you with excitement or dread? Well, don't forget, you can send us your thoughts, your hopes, your dreams, your fears. Just email newsable at stuff.co.nz and we'll get through all 64 of those elections together. Tomato soup has been splashed on Van Gogh, mashed potato has been hurled at Monet, and just last week, Mona Lisa copped tins of pumpkin soup straight to the face. For the past few years, climate change protesters have made a habit of tossing paint and food at some of the world's most famous artwork. Of course, the art has pretty much been behind protection, so no harm done. But also, has anything actually been gained? Well, some now argue repetition has blunted this form of climate protest and more effective tactics are needed. Dylan Bugden, an assistant professor of environmental sociology at Washington State University, researches the way people interpret social movements like this one. And he joins us now. Thank you, Dylan, for coming on. Sure. Thanks for having me. Do these art protests still pack the same punch, do you think? What what their goals are, I'm I'm not entirely clear. I, I assume the goal is to raise awareness of the issue, to force people to recognize that this is important, that there are people who are upset. At the same time, you know, Public opinion polling in pretty much every developed country shows that people are aware of this problem, care about this problem, and want this problem resolved. What really needs to change is the behavior of politicians, of economic and cultural elites. And so to a certain degree, maybe what this helps to do, and this may be the real target, the audience for something like this is, are those elites, right? They're going after something that wealthy people and powerful people hold dear, these these priceless pieces of, of artwork. The need for climate change action is broadened in a way everyone needs to make some change. Using shock tactics like this, do you think there's a chance it alienates the general population that we are trying to make more aware? I think it's definitely possible that certain climate tactics exacerbate existing social divisions. Um, In the United States, I think that division for us is partisanship. Um, we're just we're so partisan and that that identity has captured so much of who we are and how we think about the world. Yeah. And I do think it's possible. And the little research I have done explicitly on that question suggested that it might it does happen. That would be the downside to me. I think if you start to to contribute to existing tensions and, and divisions, then you really aren't building the kind of mass solidarity that is needed to address climate change. You know, this is not a problem that's going to be solved by getting people to give up their summer vacations and not fly or to eat less meat. This is a problem that requires mass political mobilization, mass political support for very serious policy. And um, I think that there are a lot of other movement models out there that are vastly more uh, effective at doing that. Uh, Maybe it is a problem. Maybe it distracts us from the kinds of political mobilization around climate change that is actually very effective. Is there any more expressive way to protest that you think brings people along? The effect of individual protests is a very hard thing to capture, and it's a very hard thing to, to, to identify. Um, but, you know, large protests like we saw at the climate strike a few years ago can send a signal to policymakers that there is a electoral cost to not acting, 
I think movements that are able to balance disruption, social disruption with internal institutional allies who can work on things simultaneously tend to have a lot of success. Food for thought, Tiffin Lee, and hopefully maybe no more food at Mona Lisa. Let's find out. Dylan Budden, an assistant professor of environmental sociology at Washington State University. Thank you so much for your time. Of course, thank you. A billion streams puts you in the same league as musicians like Taylor Swift and Harry Styles. But coming up, we're going to be talking about one producer who hit that milestone by focusing on four-legged listeners instead of human beings. Something pets also love listening to is this very podcast. So to make sure they and you never miss an episode, make sure you're following us on your favourite podcast platform. They're the thing travel dreams are made of empty flights. And I'm not talking about, you know, having a whole row to yourself, which to be fair is the travel dream. No, no, no. I am talking about having the whole plane. They're called a ghost flight to use the technical travel term. And it turns out, while they're not all that common, there might be ways to secure a seat on one. Stuff's travel reporter Emma Stanford is here now to hopefully share some of the ghost flight secrets she has. Kia ora, Emma. Thanks for coming on. Kia ora, Jess. You're welcome. First things first, can you explain to me what exactly is a ghost flight? Well, it's kind of like scoring a private jet, but for the same price as you paid for economy. It's, it's basically an empty plane. Um, it could have one or two passengers on it, but sometimes they do fly completely empty. And when we're talking about ghost flights, are they in Intentional? Do the airlines mean to do them? How do they come to be? Yes, well, sometimes the f- plane does fly empty on purpose. Um, these are often called repositioning flights. They're usually not open to passengers just for crew to get to a certain place um, for whatever reason, for staffing and that kind of thing. But another reason is flight delays. Now, often if a flight is delayed by several hours, a lot of people will be given the option to rebook And those people who decide, "Mm, that's all right, I'll stay on the flight that's now going six hours later, you can sometimes be the only one who decided to stay on the now later flight. So that's a way, but yeah, you do have um, the problem that you're delayed in the first place. Why would an airline still operate the flight? Why not bump, you know, two passengers onto a later flight instead? There's a couple of reasons. So there's this concept called slots. Now, airlines need to defend their slot, and that means that they need to be seen to be flying at that time, using that time, or else the airport will say, well, you're not actually flying at this time, so we're going to give that really crucial time slot to another airline. And, of course, they don't want to do that when they're trying to sell Flights. Now, they did do this a bit in COVID. They wanted to still keep those times for when COVID had gone and borders and everything were happening again. Now, the other reason is that they need to get the crew in the right place, the plane in the right place for the next day, the next service. So it's got to go there anyway, regardless of whether it's got one passenger, two or is full. And then lastly, sometimes maintenance can only be done at certain airports. So the plane has to go to that destination to get its maintenance at the end of the day. Emma, tell me, do do we have the chance of maybe booking a ghost light on purpose? The chances are not high. There's something something called passenger load factor, and that's basically how full the plane is. Now, that has only gone up every year since the year 2000. So in 2007, it was 75.1%. 2019, it was 82.6%. Now, on a typical flight that's about 200 passengers, that would mean there's only about 35 seats 
empty. So, you know, as we're going, no, planes are becoming more and more full as years go on. So it's not too likely. That's uh, Emma Stanford Stuff's travel reporter. Thank you so much for your time. Cheers. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, attention, anyone listening to this with a cat or a dog nearby. Look, it doesn't have to be yours. Any good boy will do. Just watch their reaction to this. Now, did you just watch the stress melt away from your pooch or your moggy's face? Hopefully so, because those were some of the hottest beats from the world's leading music producer for pets. I'm talking about a man called Armin Ahmed, a US music producer whose music has over a billion streams. But rather than making music for, you know, humans, Ahmed makes music to help relax anxious pets. Ahmed told the Daily Mail he picked up on the idea after COVID when many pets were struggling with separation anxiety when their owners started going back into the office after spending months and months working from home. Some owners have told him the tunes are the only thing that calms their dog's anxiety and one perch even had the music played at its funeral. His company Music for Pets was acquired by US-based Create Music Group after a surge in popularity for these animal playlists, and the new owners plan to pump $16 million into helping it grow. As for Ahmed, he's uh, currently working on some new music specifically for guinea pigs and hamsters. Well, I reckon hamsters would just love a bit of Taylor Swift. Anyway, that's news of all for today. I'm Jessica McCarthy. Kia pai tērā Have a great weekend. If you like this podcast, Please support our work. Visit stuff.co.nz slash support. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on I, what, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo about gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line there. That, that, I think it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. Yeah, 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 we're, I'm not worried about it at all. Nothing iffy in there. On. That sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts.